Hello and welcome to From Gay to Z, a podcast for queer people who are parents or parents who are queer or really for anyone who is interested in life in non-traditional families. Yes, hello. I, it's for anyone, everyone and anyone. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> I am Stu Oakley, he, him, and I have three old children. Not old children. They're older you than wish. when I first started this podcast, <laughs> that's for sure. But I have three children um, with my husband who we adopted. And Lottie over here has an almost five-year-old with her wife who they had via IUI who my husband is actually currently looking after. <laughs> yeah, if we sound a little bit, or if I sound a little bit stressed, listener, it's because Stu and I are both in the same workspace and it's a school strike on the day that we're recording. So our combined four children are currently being looked after by Stu's husband somewhere in the building that we're in. And Stu's husband also has their two dogs with them. So I'm just waiting any minute for them to barge through the door, I don't know, in some drama or another. So <laughs> I'm sure they will. It's getting closer to that idea of a commune that we first talked about, where we, the four of us should just get together. It is, isn't it? And so far it's going well because John's taking on most of the emotional, yeah, it's emotional load. If you are interested in the ins and outs of our parenting journey, um, IUI, adoption, etc. Do go and have a listen to our old podcast, which we feel very fondly towards, Some Families. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And we cover these subjects like how to adopt, how to have a child with IUI or IVF. We cover these subjects in depth. Yeah, and we go really in and out of all of this, don't we? Because I just wanted to get that in there as well. Because this episode, talking of FNAR, FNAR, in and out, it's all about sex. Q like some kind of Madonna-esque justify my love background, I think. But we are going there, listener. We felt it was time that we addressed parenting and sex. So we have the amazing Dr. Karen Gurney, who's going to be joining us. She's a sex, she's a queer sex therapist and a parent herself. And she's going to talk to us about sex, intimacy, and what happens to that side of yourself when you do become a parent. We've got so many questions, and I can't wait to get into that chat. So many. But first, Stu, what has been going on with you? And I ask that with a slight frisson in my voice, because I know what's been going on with you, and you're a sly fox. I am a sly fox. We got married this week. Well, I say that because technically we did get married. But we, and we didn't tell anyone, even you lot, I am sorry, because it felt like we were eloping, which felt I was quite, like, well, for a start, special. I thought you were married already. <laughs> that's, what my, that's what my maid of honour said but when wait, I told her. But wait, can you clarify? Like, you had a civil partnership. Ten years ago. So John and I had our wedding ten years ago, and it was a civil partnership. It was a year before same-sex marriage became legal. So we decided to just do it then, and we never thought any differently. Because really, there isn't that much difference. It's just the terminology. But to celebrate our 10-year anniversary, we thought we would do a special ceremony where we converted our civil partnership into a marriage. And we did it with just the five of us. So just us and the kids, nobody else in a registry office. And it was so lovely because our kids have always been so excited about our wedding. Like looking yeah, at photos, so looking nice. at videos. So, and they loved it and we got all dressed up and did some readings, did, did our vows. I got John an eternity ring, which is an exact replica of my engagement ring. 
Um, so he's now happy. He finally has some diamonds. Oh, so that's, that's so nice. Good. I was so happy for you, honestly. I mean, I was oh, thank slightly you. upset I didn't get an invite to be the one person <laughs> that was standing there witnessing it all. But uh, honestly, I'm and the sorry. photos are so gorgeous. Um, but talking of marriage, it's quite funny because um, something I wanted to bring up was that obviously our kids, their main reference to marriage and future is a same-sex relationship. So when I talk to my daughter about the future and what she wants to be or how she sees her life, which is always a very funny and fun conversation to have with a four-year-old, she always says she's going to get married and she always says she's going to get married to a woman. And like, obviously, because that's what she sees and that's what she knows. But it's quite funny because I find myself having to say to her, or a man, or you might find a nice man. It could be a man. Like like having to remind her that... um, you know, heterosexuality is a thing, which is so the polar opposite yeah. of what like ninety nine percent of the country or the world. <laughs> it is the opposite. Um, the complete feel. opposite. And it was funny because but... I told this anecdote. I did this panel recently for John Lewis, and I told this anecdote on this panel. Um, and this woman who was on the panel, who's kind of a celebrity woman, I won't mention her name. She said to me, "Do most gay people end up with gay kids then?" And I was like slightly taken aback by the question. And yeah. I was like, I didn't, because it was like a live recording panel. I didn't want to sort of, you know, change the tone. But I was like, oh, I don't know, actually. I don't think there's been a massive amount of research done, but I don't suppose so. I don't suppose it has any impact. It's the same a straight, straight people, people don't end just purely raise straight. gay kids. <laughs> I think I said that. And I think I said something along the lines of, well, I suppose the children of queer people will just be aware of it and as an option and as a viable future well, they know that it's more open it's more an open conversation so if yeah it's, if it's something that they are they'll feel more you know empowered to exactly come out with that. and they will have that emotional intelligence to be able to recognize yeah that, yeah I, I mean i don't think she meant it as a sort of obtuse question and you know it isn't it, i guess it's interesting yeah i don't know do you are kids more likely to be gay if they've got parents that are gay maybe but um, yeah, it's quite funny. I, don't, I I think it's more that they would be maybe. I think they may come out sooner. Yeah, they may feel more free in their sexuality and in their their identity. Or it will be like that episode of Absolutely Fabulous where um, Safi has to tell Eddie that she's straight. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time to welcome Dr. Karen Gurney, clinical psychologist and psychosexologist. I mean, what a title. I love that. Um, He's the director of the Havelock Clinic and Karen has been successfully helping individuals and couples overcome sexual problems since 2003. She's also the author of Mind the Gap, The Truth About Desire and How to Future-Proof Your Sex Lives. And those are my dogs that I have in the room with me today as well. So just (laughs) just to add into the mix... Um, and Karen, you're a parent yourself. So, I mean, let's just kick off. I so, am. Being a parent, does it really spell the end of your sex life as you know it? Because I, I could definitely relate to that. <laughs> the quick answer is it, it doesn't have to. But I think it's also really important to say that being a parent is a time of really low se- sexual satisfaction for many people. So I think it's really important to state that because... If we don't state that up front, people can end up feeling as though there's something unique to them or unique to the sexual relationships they find themselves in, 
which is problematic. In actual fact, we know it's a period of low sexual satisfaction. We don't have any data for non-monogamous couples, interestingly, on what happens to sexual satisfaction for new parents. But we do know that it is a time of struggle. And those of us that are parents will know that there are a ton of reasons for that. You know, time available, increased stress, increased mental load. So we know that for people with kids, we can see drops in relationship satisfaction um, and we see that happen more steeply for people with kids than people who've been together for the same length of time without kids. And relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction for many people also go hand in hand. So the bottom line is parenthood is associated with lower sexual satisfaction and it's important to know that, to not feel too problematized by that, to know that there is hope at the end of the tunnel. But with some kind of awareness of that, with some intentional action, which I'm sure we'll get into talking about today, um, it doesn't need to spell the end of a good sex life. Okay, well, I think that's probably a relief for lots of people listening, including Stu and I, I'm sure. Um, but so something that I've been wondering, kind of observing my own friends and my straight friends, um, and the kind of dynamics of relationships is I've wondered if queer relationships, and I think I'm thinking quite specifically about lesbians here, that in queer relationships, two, the two people are more likely to become best friends. And I'm wondering if you think that's a fair observation and what kind of effect this can have on a sex life. I think it is a fair observation. I think, you know, emotional intimacy and emotional closeness is often, not always, but often a precursor to long-term sexual satisfaction. So I think it's important to see that there are real benefits from having emotional closeness. But I think something I observe a lot in my clinical practice, um, and this is um, with queer couples particularly, is that there can be such a thing as too much emotional intimacy and there can be such a thing as too little emotional intimacy. And too much might look like feeling two halves of one whole. It might look like spending all of your time together. It might look like not having your own interests or friendship groups, not having any time apart or distance. And after some time together, so if you're having sex with the same person over time, really you need a little bit of distance. You need some kind of newness. You need something to be brought in. I would say that if anyone's listening and is wondering which of those two camps they fall into, a really useful way of addressing that is to just try something different. So if you think, I've got a hunch that actually we're probably a bit too close, then see what happens if you put a bit of distance in. Or if you think, I've got a hunch it might be the other way around, see what happens if you increase the emotional mm. um, intensity. And some really interesting sex research suggests that it's actually a change in distance that is useful, not necessarily uh, which direction it goes. So when people go away and they come back together, they often feel a bit of a kind of uh, reignition of some kind of spark. So sometimes it's a change in distance rather than the direction of that distance. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So when you say, so say you were feeling um, like you were too close to your partner, you did everything together. Do you mean you could literally like get a hobby or go and see some different friends? Are you talking sort of like outside the sexual sphere in terms of like interests and stuff? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, so just emotional distance, spending time investing in yourself rather than investing in the two of you. Interesting. And there's a really close link between what happens in terms of emotional intimacy and what happens in people's sex lives. For some people, they really need that intensity and closeness. For other people, their desire is stifled by it. So experimenting with that can be really interesting. I think that's a, it's, it's super interesting how you're saying it can be that distance because I do think, do you think that people, and I suppose this is across the board, not necessarily just a queer thing, that people come to accept their partner as just being their best friend and that actually there should be more to it than just that. And do you think that there's sometimes people just kind of fall into that? Well, they're my best friend. So even if there's no sex, let's just, you know, crack on kind of thing. Like, what yeah. Would... yeah, I do. And I think that that's that kind of trap for people who do want to be sexual, because of course not everyone does, that trap for people, I think, is often kind of perpetuated in society. Uh, there's an idea that long-term relationships become sexless over time. There's a particular idea of that for queer women around the kind of myth of lesbian bed death, which is not a thing. Um, but it's something Lesbian that... bed death? I've never, never heard, heard of that, that before. Oh. <laughs> no. So this was a term that was coined uh, in the 80s, actually. And it was an idea that if you have two women that are in a long-term relationship together, a sexual relationship together, eventually they will stop having sex. And I still see people for sex therapy who who know about lesbian dead, bed death and worry that that's what's happening in their relationship. It's not a thing. Uh, we know that from science, we know that from sex research, but there are things that are different for queer people around um, how sex happens, how often sex happens, different levels of pleasure that queer people get in comparison to their straight cis counterparts uh, that make that look more problematic. So, for example, we know we've been talking about queer women with regards to lesbian bed death. We know that queer women have less sex, and by that I mean any sexual act, um, than straight women. Um, and we also know that queer women have three times the amount of orgasms compared to straight women. And we know that when straight women have sex with male partners, the sex lasts on average about 18 minutes. We know that when women have sex with female partners, the sex lasts on average about 57 minutes. Oh, wow. So we're not comparing... 57 minutes? 57 minutes. So That's like I mean, some sting I'm, stuff going on there, that, isn't it? That's like... <laughs> is that why you stopped doing it after? That's that's the reason for lesbian bed day. It just takes so long. <laughs> it takes so long, no one's got time, especially it's parents. Like, oh, yeah. I haven't got of a course. spare hour. I need to watch the latest succession. <laughs> of course, what I'm not saying is that orgasms and long sex sessions equate with great sex. You can have short sex, you can have sex that doesn't have orgasms. What I'm saying is it's like comparing apples and pears. And because the literature had been so cis-heteronormative, they concluded that when they asked about sex, they were only asking about frequency. And so it made um, queer women's sex lives look inferior but it right. wasn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, Quality, not quantity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That makes so much sense. It really does. And it's, I do think that maybe the, the, the gay, the gay man deathbed as well also does happen. But as you say, it's so nuanced, I feel, for queer relationships. And there's a sense that there's a lot of couples that are in potentially open relationships 
maybe a bit more polyamorous in their, their approach to relationships. Do you think that is true of queer couples? And and then when you throw children into the mix, like what happens then? Do you do you think that that almost kills off the idea of an open relationship by having children? So it's definitely true that queer people are more likely to have open or poly relationship structures. And I think this represents a kind of queerness of thinking and a more kind of open perspective on diversity in all of yeah. its forms, diversity of sexuality, diversity of gender expression, diversity of relationship structures. We know that humans aren't designed to be monogamous. There's no evidence that monogamy works. It just happens to be a dominant structure. And I think that queer people are pretty good at looking outside of dominant structures and finding things that work for them. So I think you're right about that. Um, in terms of the impact of parenthood on that, I mean, I think what I would say is those of us that parents know how time poor having kids can make us and how kids can really restrict our social lives. And I would say that if you're in an open or poly relationship and you live with all of your sexual partners, then maybe you won't see much impact. But for people who need to travel out of their kind of um family home or if they live with kids and they have kind of caregiving responsibilities and need to be at home all night practically I think it's just practically that it could be more challenging not impossible but just like maintaining any other relationships like friendships it can be harder it's that thing of just being so time poor I I feel that me and my husband feel that all the time it's that sense of you get to the end you get to the evening and you think oh maybe we can actually have sex this evening and you're just so bloody tired. And that's the other, I think, the killer. It's like the moment you do have time, you suddenly, there's another excuse. And more often than not, it's that you're so exhausted. that, And also you just probably don't feel that sexual either after having a day of kids and trying to deal with them and dinners and bath time. It just makes you feel very not in the mood for it at all. Um I think I would always be in the mood for it in the morning and then the kids are there. Bang. Hi, here we are. So it's just like this impossible cycle. I mean, what would yeah. you say to that? Like, what are the tips? Like, what can we do to try and, you know, when we're feeling so frazzled in the evening and there's no time at any yeah. other time, like, what can we do to try and, you know, spice up the mood as it were? Gosh, there's so much to say to that one. I mean, you're quite right. Kind of, <laughs> Being time poor and also being tired, like sleep deprivation or just fatigue are the two number one reasons people give when their parents to kind of what gets in the way of their sex life. And that's obviously different for people at different stages of their parenting journey. One of the things I think is quite interesting is that I notice that we don't often get much space before children come into our lives, no matter how children arrive in our lives. We don't get much space to think about, well, how is this going to affect the practicalities of my sex life? And Stu, you raise a really interesting point, which is that for some people, they feel like sex in the morning. But that's just when they naturally feel like it. And before kids came along, that might have been the time that it happened. And it can be quite difficult to have that time schedule dictated for you by kids because what you're essentially moving from is a situation pre-kids when you could act on desire if it emerged or if the mood took you to kind of invest in desire, you could act on it to a situation post-kids 
Well, you only can act, you can only have sex when the time allows it. So you're not necessarily in the headspace. And as you say, um, after bedtime, after bath time, if there's ever a time people don't feel like sex, it's then. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are good reasons for that, which is that we know that when people are in a nurturing role, kind of nurturing children, it's inherently unsexing. Yeah. So that's not to say that mothers or fathers or parents can't be sexy, but nurturing children is inherently unsexy. So when you go from that to then thinking, right, now we want to have sex tonight, we felt like it two hours ago when we got home from work and now after bath time, no. Um, that is so common. And I think one of my top tips about that, I guess, is to firstly understand what's happening with desire, which is that your desire is not there. That doesn't mean it can't be nurtured. It doesn't mean you don't have desire to feel desire. It's not there at that point. And the best give, gift that you could give each other at that stage is to allow each other a little bit of time and space to allow that to emerge. So, for example, you might find that there are particular things you need after bath time and bedtime to help you get in that zone. You might need to go for a walk around the block if there's someone else at home with the kids. You might need a bath. You might need to change your outfit to like get out of your parenting comfies. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And not just into your pajamas, which I do, just my very unsexy t-shirt yeah. and shorts. Oh, so <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You you may just need the passage of time. And sometimes people can put a little bit of pressure on themselves. They're like, oh, I want to feel like sex now. I don't feel like it now. We might need to say to each other, I don't feel like it now, but I want to get in the headspace. What can we do to get ourselves in the headspace? Shall we, shall we get changed and go and like have a date in this room in the house? Shall we, um, you know, shall we go and have a bath together? Shall we just go and do something non-parenty separately together and meet again in an hour's time? Shall we just be in bed and be naked together and not feel pressure to have to feel like it's straight away? Because it's likely that desire will emerge, but people often feel uncomfortable inhabiting that space between wanting to feel desire and yeah. feeling desire. That's quite a hard space to inhabit. Definitely. I do, yeah, I think that's a really good point because you've made me think, and actually it's something we've stopped doing recently, but I will be honest and say something that my husband John and I do sometimes, and Lottie's going to have to see him after this and look him in the eye, is um, <laughs> we would do that. I think the naked thing is a really interesting thing because I would suggest doing like a naked movie time where we just get a duvet and we both sit naked under the duvet downstairs and watch a film and there's no pressure to do anything. There's just, we just like feeling each other's like skin next to each other. And generally things then do progress at some point in the evening. But we've gone into it in a, in a, in a, right, let's just have sex right now. It's more of a, it, it becomes more of an organic process, I feel. Cause I, I suppose the other thing as well is it's, it's, it's one thing trying to get yourself in the headspace after parenting. But if you're in a, which queer couples often are, you're in a, equal parenting relationship that's a really good you're point. both feeling yeah. the same there's not you know, one of you that's yes. like couples, done less yeah. in a day and is like you know ganging for a shag because they've not done any of the childcare and can kind of like push for it more yeah yes and actually that's a really important point i think you know one of the things 
that it's really important to hold in mind in this whole discussion, I'm glad you raised it, is that there are so many opportunities to queer couples to have good sex. And actually, that's one of them. We know that queer couples are more likely to have equal share over parenting and equal share over household labor. And there's a direct relationship between equal division of labor and long-term sexual satisfaction. So that is really important. I'm glad you mentioned it. But the thing you said about the duvet, um, it's a wonderful suggestion. And the reason for that is because humans are actually like other mammals in that there is a kind of instinctual offline sexual arousal process that happens to us before our cognitive brain can get involved. So our thinking brain that goes, oh, I'm too busy. Oh, if I do it now, I'm going to be tired tomorrow. Oh, I'm distracted. Other oh, kids going to walk in. All of that thinking stuff. That offline arousal is usually triggered by physical touch. So if we see something erotic, so if we watch porn, if we feel touched to our skin, if we have our naked bodies close together, it's actually quite hard for our bodies not to get turned on. The thing that will get in the way of that is pressure. So by doing it while you're watching a film and there's no set time, it might happen, it might not. There's plenty of time for that to build. It takes away the pressure. Nice. So it's actually a really good solution. Fun, Stu. I see a little sex therapist. <laughs> Book two on the horizon. <laughs> Um, I didn't I even know I was doing time. it. <laughs> Karen. Um, it was just a way I could try and get John naked on the sofa, basically. <laughs> um, Karen, uh, queer people tend to be over-sexualized by society. Our sexuality is presented as the defining thing about our identity. And I was wondering about the effect that this might have on us and the fact that if we're not actually having sex or we're not having that much of it with a partner... Do we sometimes feel a pressure that this makes us feel somehow less queer or less successful as a queer person? That's a really good question. Um, I can really see the rationale for that. I mean, we all know, don't we, that queerness is much more than acts of sex. Queerness is about, it's about attraction. It's about fantasies. It's about our social circle. It's about our politics. There's so much more to queerness than acts of sex. So I think that's really important. But I would say that aside from that, with couples of all gender identities and sexualities, I think there is a bit of a trap for people to fall into an idea of sex as a kind of on-off switch. So when we're having sex, we are a sexual person or a sexual couple. So there's the switch on. And the rest of the time, the switch is off. Um, I think actually it's more the case that we're always sexual people, whether that's on our own with the stuff we're doing, like having solo sex, whether it's the fantasies we have, whether it's the people we're attracted to, whether it's just the way we appreciate and move our body, whether it's about the clothes we wear, we're always being sexual in that way. And in our sexual relationships, we have an opportunity to do the same. It shouldn't be that we're, we've only got a sex life if we're having sex together. It should be that we're being sexual together when we're flirting, when we have a quick, passionate kiss because we haven't got time for anything else, when we smack each other's arses as we walk past each other in the kitchen, like whatever it might be, these are the moments that I call sexual currency. And it's far more important to have a lot of that and hardly any sex than it is to have sex with hardly any of that. That's interesting. 
Very interesting. Going to start slapping some more bums, I think. Consensually, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Only consensually. Consent. Yeah, to my husband, but I think not just like randomly. The <laughs> like, hello. <laughs> that could enter a whole world of problems. <laughs> I think one of the things that, you know, the advice I often give um, to new parents around their sex life as well is that actually parenthood restricts the amount of sex that you can have. We know that to be a fact. It doesn't restrict opportunities for sexual connection. And it's those moments of sexual connection that really keep your sex life alive while you can't have sex because you're too tired or too busy. So, for example, it would be quite common for me to work with a couple that might say, my partner kind of pushing me up against the wall in a lift and kissing me passionately for three seconds until the lift door opened made me feel more desired than the last time we had sex. So if you think about what sex is for in a relationship, you know, we can have orgasms alone, you know. So what are we having sex for? It's usually to feel connected, to feel desired, to feel like we have that sexual bond as a couple, um, to express love, whatever it might be. And you could do that in other ways than sex and sometimes more effectively as well. Oh, I really want someone to push me up against the wall. I know, I was thinking that sounds great. <laughs> well, you know what, Stu, our book launch, because the book launch is on the 43rd floor of the Shard, that's the a really shard. long lift journey. That's a really long passion yeah. session. Oh, you should set lift. it as a challenge. You should set okay. it as a oh. challenge for people in the yes. list to okay. really, that's yeah. gonna really like design. do the queers a favour, isn't it? Of like our, our <laughs> reputation. Just all these queer people coming <laughs> for a book launch keep making out in the lift. <laughs> Just put some antiseptic wipes uh. in there or something. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So let's go for a very quick break and we'll be back with the sex doctor. And we're back talking to the amazing Dr. Karen Gurney. You, you also raised something then that I'm also really interested in is that sense of, I suppose, because you were saying about we can orgasm on our own. We don't need somebody else. I really feel that especially parent or not, that when you're in a relationship, there's such a sense of almost shame about masturbation and that it's not, it, it, it feels, I don't know, it feels a bit maybe icky to even think that you're, this is how I projecting that your partner is masturbating without you but actually how important that can be for your sex life what's your kind of take on that I suppose yeah I mean masturbation and partnered sex are very different things aren't they and you know one of the interesting things about people's return to being sexual after becoming parents um, is that they can often return to masturbation much quicker than they return to partnered sex and there are good reasons for that, which is that when you're a parent, if you've only got five minutes, sometimes you don't want to invest in a longer sex session with someone else, or you feel a big mess and you don't want to be naked with someone else. You just want to get the job done. If your motivation is to come, you just want to get it done. <laughs> and that's totally fine. People also get to explore different things with solo sex, don't they? They get to explore things that they might not do with their partner. So they are very different things. We know that people who masturbate generally have higher sexual satisfaction than people who don't. Um, so it's a useful thing for partnered sex in that vein as well. Is that because they put lo uh, kind of they're putting less pressure on the the couple sex? Would you say? There's a variety of hypotheses for this. It may be that people who masturbate are just a bit more relaxed about sex, have less sexual shame, um, are more tuned into their own pleasure. And these are all things that then translate into partnered sex. Got you. Okay. Very interesting. 
I'm like, oh yes, that complete makes complete sense. Really, do you is there that sense that we feel that everyone is having more sex than what we are? Like, I always feel that you see other couples, yeah. or again going back to the queer thing, seeing other you know LGBTQ plus people out there, especially from my point of view of seeing gay men. You know, the notion of promiscuous gay men out there. It's like, oh God, everyone's having sex but me, especially now that I feel like a dried up old parent. <laughs> like, but is that actually true? Like, what is the right amount of sex in a relationship? Is there even such a thing? Yeah. So, it's pretty across the board, most people feel that they're having less sex than everyone else. So, that is a common feeling. I think something I often say is that we shouldn't really get hung up on frequency at all. Frequency is a total red herring when it comes to sexual satisfaction. Um, It's often used as a proxy for good sex, but actually it isn't. Because if you're having sex that isn't fulfilling, where you don't feel connected to people, if you're having sex where your boundaries aren't being respected, if you're having sex that doesn't feel good for you then actually it's going to be bad for your sexual satisfaction and your desire over time so you could have less frequent sex that blows your socks off and that's better for your sex life in the wrong run so people do get hung up on frequency but they really shouldn't and as we've already said there are real differences for queer people in frequency as well Uh, you know for example we know that uh, queer men have less penetrative sex than any other group so they have less penetrative sex than um, men and women when they have sex together. They have less penetrative sex than queer women when they're having sex together. Uh, but I think for a lot of queer men, that just isn't a message that is talked about openly. And so they end up feeling, well, I'm not having enough penetrative sex. Uh, when actually that's entirely normal for, for that group of people. So, yeah, so I think it's, Frequency is something yeah, we shouldn't that, worry that's about. That's a whole other complication as well. <laughs> yeah, and the, the reason that queer men often give for having less penetrative sex is the prep, the yep. prep required. Mm-hmm. And when when you think about parenthood, yep. and yeah. Prep, well, also it's yeah. like redefining what sex is. We've all got these such kind of like binary ideas still, haven't we? Of like what is sex mm. that it and it's so sort of attached to penetration that like just from growing up and like watching TV and like I guess it's always very heteronormative isn't it so I think like yeah becoming more relaxed and open-minded about what sex can mean for you I think as you say Karen and I've listened to your audiobook and I have to say it's fantastic and I'd really recommend anyone to read or listen it's a good one to listen to I think you do a great job of reading it Oh, thank you. It's my it's my soft northern tones. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right, though. You know that there is a huge advantage that queer people have here around their being. Um, although we live in a kind of cis-heteronormative society where penetration, specifically penis and vagina penetration, is seen as the ultimate sexual act. Yes, we are affected by that because that's what we've been taught. That's what we see all around us. But queer people have huge diversity in the way that they have sex. And this is a huge resource. There isn't a set menu. There is diversity in the roles that people take during sex. There's more turn-taking. There's diversity in the types of sex that people have and the order in which those things happen. And this thinking outside the box is a really protective factor in long-term sexual satisfaction. So that's something that I would encourage 
the listeners kind of of your podcast to think about how can they continue to have a diverse sex life that 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 isn't samey that doesn't always look start the same way have the same thing in the middle and end the same way that involves turn taking which doesn't need to be um um doesn't need to happen in the same occurrence so sex can just be one person doing something to somebody else and that's the end of it and that's something which through my sex therapy work i notice um cishet people struggle with a lot that idea that it can just be about one person or that you can right. you could really um be versatile around roles i mean not, not everyone wants to be versatile around roles but there is a capacity for much more versatility and that's great for sexual satisfaction. Yeah. And Karen, just finally, if someone's listening to this and thinking, great, I really want to start thinking about my sex life since I've become a parent. I need to start talking to my partner about what I want, what I need, what our sex life is. And I'm a parent and most of our conversation is domestic or it's watching TV or it's just not about sex. What is your practical advice for opening up those kind of conversations with a partner once you've become a parent. Could you give us a few tips for how to start those conversations? Okay. So this will depend on how good communication is more generally. So if you feel that you've already got a good foundation and can talk about most things quite easily, then you could move on to starting to talk about sex. But for some people, they need to start work on generic communication stuff um, and there's plenty of relationship books and resources that you can read so that you can talk about difficult things without feeling that the other person's going to get defensive make light of it not listen you know that's that's an essential foundation after that I think it's useful to just state the intention of talking about it so for example you might say I'd really like us to get better at talking about sex and then it's important to say why so why, why is it going to be a good thing for you both? So I'd like us to start talking about sex more because we've always had a good sex life and I want to keep it good now that we're parents. So th this is something that's going to benefit us both. So it can be good to state it and set a bit of an intentionality about it and think about what that will look like. For people who are less comfortable talking about sex, and let's be honest, we've all been socialised to find that difficult. It's not easy then it might be good to start with talk about sex that's depersonalized. So Stu mentioned uh, movie nights that they have, and they're not particularly about films that have got sex scenes in them, as, as far as I know. But one of the tasks I often set for couples is, for one of your date nights, pick a film that is notorious for having a good sex scene in it. So just a run-of-the-mill film that happens to have a sex scene in it, and just set an intention to talk about it afterwards. Like what was hot about it? What didn't you like? Um, so just getting more comfortable having those conversations that aren't about the two of you. You also might do that around things that you've read, you know, um, podcasts that you've listened to. People could share this podcast and say, let's talk about that. Um, it could be art, it could be theatre, whatever. Once people are comfortable talking about sex in a kind of depersonalized way, you know, saying the words out loud and hearing each other, then it can be useful to move on to a phase of talking about sex between the two of you. And I have a couple of free resources on my website that if you like, you could put in the show notes. So one of them Ooh, yeah, great. is um, establishing your conditions for good sex. So it's a task to do alone, then come and share it together. 
and one of them is how to have a conversation about improving your sex life over time. It basically includes questions like, what three things do we want to stay the same or continue? And what else would we like to add in? And what might be the barriers to that? Just really simple structures that allow you both to talk about where you want to go. And it's important to talk about where you want to go, not where you don't want to go, which is often where people fall into. They often say, I don't want you to do this anymore. I don't want you to do that. I, I hate it when you do that. We never do this enough. That's not necessarily helpful. Instead, I'd love it if we did this more. I really liked it. Exactly. So I've got some templates I could share with you for your listeners if you like. That would be amazing, Karen. Thank you. Yeah, please do. And we'll definitely put those in the show notes for sure. Great. Um, and before you go, Karen, we do have a section on the podcast, I'm not sure if you're aware, where we try, and I say the word try, because Lottie and I, uh, 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 let's say, pretended to be agony aunts throughout the, the course of this series, helping people with the problems that they've shared us. But we actually have an actual expert, a doctor nonetheless. <laughs> so would you be happy to help us with um, somebody who wrote in with their, with their, with a problem today? Sure. So I will read it. So this is from, they're remaining anonymous and they're from the LGBT Parents UK Facebook group. And she says, my missus and I are having a second baby. We are very excited and for the most part, we are happy with our lives as we already have a three-year-old and my other half works nights. Finding quality time together is already quite tricky, but we do try and prioritize intimacy wherever we can and to try and maintain a good sex life. It's helped us to feel united and connected as a couple and makes other aspects of our life easier. But the issue that they're now having is that I am more the dominant person in the bedroom and we've tried switching, but the dynamic doesn't work the other way around. I am the one carrying and my stomach is getting bigger, making positions tricky. Any advice that you can give? Mm, okay. It's like you said, the roles, isn't it, that people sometimes play in those in in that relationship. And then you've got the added addition of a big pregnant belly in a way as well. Like, yeah. How do you, you know, kind of work through that? So pregnant bellies can be something which can get in the way. Um you know, a pregnancy is a funny time because it's a time where everything changes for people's sexual lives temporarily. And it can be a great resource because it opens up new things, new positions, new ways of being touched, new preferences. It could also be a time of limitation because it gets in the way of stuff that you like. And it sounds like that's what it is for these these people. It's temporary. This This part is temporary. I'm not concerned about this couple. They, it sounds like they, they find ways to prioritize their sex lives. In many ways, that's the work they're already doing. All they could really do is think about, well, if we were to be super creative here, what else could we add in? What else could we try that might um, fill that need for us, even if it's not the physical act? At the end of the day, this is a temporary period and it sounds like it's a period which has jeopardized how smoothly their sex life usually goes. And that's quite normal for lots of people, but it's a period they will get through and they'll be back to normal. So I think find a way of making it work for them, which they can only brainstorm together. I wouldn't be able to come up with that bit for them. Go and have a passion yeah. in the lift. 
<laughs> that's my takeaway from today i'm gonna go and, i was gonna say find someone but i mean find my Your husband literally yeah. outside, outside the door. Yeah. um karen it's been so brilliant having you on i could talk to you loads about this subject i think that it's so interesting specifically for queer people specifically for queer parents and as I said before, I'd urge people to read or to listen to your book because it's just brilliant and it's so helpful. So thank you for writing it and thank you for being so present. And also people can follow you on social media, which also is a great resource. Um, What's yes, your handle, info. App is Sex Doctor on Instagram. And thanks for having me on. I'm super happy to have the opportunity to focus specifically on queer parents and also to get to shout from the rooftops all of the resources that queer parents have um, so that they can use them because they're there. So thank you for having me yes, on. Yes, amazing. Well, thank you so Good much. Pleasure. Karen. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of From Gay to Z. Please remember that we've got a book coming out called The Queer Parent, Everything You Need to Know From Gay to Z. Um, it's out next week, depending on when you're listening to this. It's out on the 11th of May. So please do pick up your copy. And we are going to be taking a very small break on the podcast. So that is the end of season one. But do not fear, listener. We will be back for season two. So keep your ears open for our return. And obviously do follow us on Insta, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at From Gay to Z.